following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Dave Quilla. I'm one of the pastors here. It's, it's my privilege to, to bring you the word this morning. I'm looking forward to our, our time together. And as, as Perry mentioned, we're going to be in Psalm 13. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. Well, does anyone here like to sing the blues? If you raise your hand if you like to sing the blues. Does everyone even know what the blues are? The, blue, the origin of the blues, the genre of music known as the blues, is uh, the history of it is, is not well documented, but most historians would trace the beginning of the blues to the deep south region of our country. And they, uh, they, they came into, to being, started to hearing the, the blues music or modern blues sometime around the end of the Civil War. And early blues was influenced by the work songs, the field songs, the field haulers of men and women who were working in the fields, in agriculture, in the orchards and plantations of the time. And the words and the, the music or the lyrics of the blues would often deal with the challenges and the, the difficulties of life. But I find it interesting that one of the characteristics of early blues music was verses that consisted of one line that was repeated four times. So keep that in mind as we open to Psalm 13 here in just a minute. And as we read this psalm in a few minutes, see if you don't recognize some similarities to the early blues. I think a valid argument could be made that the blues actually didn't originate in the deep south in the 1860s, but in ancient Israel thousands of years ago. Psalm 13 could actually be one of the first written and composed blues ballads. So our big idea this morning as we look at Psalm 13 is this. For the Christian, victory in our trials is dependent upon looking upward rather than inward. As I've always said, we're going to look at Psalm 13 this morning. This is where we're going to spend our morning. And this is a blues psalm if there ever was one. Modern-day scholars would classify it as a psalm of lament, but it's clearly that begins with the blues. In this psalm, David is going to pour out his heart for us. We're going to be completely transparent. We read of his frustration, of his distress and his discouragement. He sounds as if he's utterly defeated. He expresses his despondency and complaints. But in the midst of that, you'll never hear any kind of unbelief or resentment in the midst of his his questioning. So stand with me as we read Psalm 13. We stand here, if you're new, out of respect and admiration for God's word. Follow along. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully 
with me. Lord, we thank you for your word and how it speaks to us in our lives today. Lord, we thank you that we see much of the challenges that David faced, the questions that he had would resonate with us this morning. We pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So do you hear a bit of the blues in this psalm, especially in the beginning? Especially the cry that David cries out four times. How long? How long? How long, O Lord? Just to make sure the Lord is listening. How long? One more time. Charles Spurgeon would say about this psalm, he says, This psalm is intended to express the feelings of the people of God in the midst of relentless trials. Let me assure you this morning, if you're here and you've never had reason to vocalize the kinds of feelings and thoughts and questions that David writes about in this psalm, you will. If you, like David, aspire to be a man or a woman of God after God's own heart as David was, if it's your passion to be transformed into the image and conformed into the image of God's Son, there will be a time in your life where God is going to test you. If the Spirit hasn't already done so, He will at some point, He's going to probe the depths of your heart and do the hard work of sanctification that will bring out similar words that David expresses here in this psalm. Psalm 13 is an amazingly short tale of the struggles that come with endless trials. Trials that cause misery and despair. In this psalm, we're also going to see how quickly those words of despair, though it can be turned into words of worship and rejoicing. In just a few short verses, this psalm will swings wildly from utter despair to triumph. The entire gamut of human emotions packed into six short verses. This is a psalm that many of us, I'm sure, can relate to this morning. I know that I certainly do. It opens with the pain of the experience that we have as humans living in a sinful and fallen world. We see the humanity of this great king, a man who was like us in many ways as well. This psalm makes him relatable to us. And like David, we can find ourselves impatient and easily frustrated at times. This is one of those passages of scripture that resonates powerful, powerfully with almost every human heart because it expresses the pain of human experiences. We see here that David is not so different from us. We can relate to his impatience and his frustration and despair expressed in the opening verses. And But who doesn't like or a desire to experience the joy of triumph by the end as David closes this psalm? As Christians, we can appreciate that it ends on a note of triumph. Psalm 13 gives us sort of a road map on how to go from despair to deliverance. And this morning, I want to follow that road map along with you. And there's certainly ample material throughout the psalms for any blues singer. But unlike the typical blues ballads and songs that we hear today, this psalm ends with a celebration of triumph. That's the true, true of most of the psalms that begin with expressions of human misery. And you just can't achieve that kind of mood swing with modern blues music. But it is common to the Christian experience. I appreciate David's honesty that he writes about in these, in this verse, in, these, in this chapter, his passions. Let's for not forget that as David is writing this psalm, he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen these words, to put them on paper, 
The word of anguish that David opens up with are not an exaggerated complaint. They're not the angry cry of resentment. They are honest human emotions and feelings sanctioned and attested to by the Holy Spirit. I know some people who would try to suppress similar kinds of feelings. They think these kind of emotions and feelings are not appropriate for the Christian. But the Psalms teach us that they are. If you read through the Psalms, not just this Psalm, but there are other Psalms where you just hear raw emotion. David crying out here, how long? Will you forget me forever, Lord? It's okay to voice our emotions and our feelings and ask tough questions. But the key is what do we do with those emotions? What do we do with those questions? The Psalms not only give us freedom to express our God-given emotions, they instruct us on how to deal with them in a way that honors God. And we're going to see that this morning in Psalm 13. Let me say that I would believe that the book of Psalms, in my mind at least, is one of the greatest proofs of the divine inspiration of the Bible. This book contains the whole gamut of human emotions and feelings. It doesn't shy away from being candid about human feelings and frailty. And no human would ever dream up or create a religion that celebrates the sanctifying benefits of misery and frustration. But this kind of raw honesty is found throughout the book of Psalms. What we have again in Psalm 13 is a roadmap that only not only shows us the way up and out of a sense of despair. It's not by any effort of our own, not by any merit of our own, nor by any four or five or 12 step program, but by faith. in The one who can deliver us and lift us out of that miry clay and set our feet back on the firm foundation. Psalm 13 is a fascinating look into David's prayer life as well. I like the way that he prays. He pours out his soul in his frustrations. He deals honestly with his fears, and he concludes by declaring his faith. The psalm divides neatly into three sections. First one, verses 1 and 2 record David's protest or his cry. Verses 3 and 4 give us his petition to God. In the closing verses, we see David expressing his worship to God. So we have a complaint, a prayer, and a song of triumph. There's a clear progression here throughout it, from frustration to fear to faith. And all of these are honest and straightforward expressions of David's heart as he struggles through the ordeal of a severe trial that seems to him to be without end. While the psalm isn't really a lesson about prayer, it is a model response for Christians going through deep afflictions. David wrote it in anguish over the apparent success of some unrelenting enemy. The frustration that he expresses in this, scene, in this psalm comes from a seemingly ungodly en- an enemy who's prospering. Well, it seemed as if God was hiding his face from David. Nevertheless, David's initial desperate groan, it's only the beginning of the story. And as we'll see later, there is a remarkable contrast from the opening two verses to the last two verses. It's amazing and wonderful that such an earnest cry for relief can turn quickly into a song of triumph and faith. Something changes from those first two verses to the last two verses. We'll see what the change was in a bit, but let me say up front, it wasn't David's circumstances that changed. There's no evidence in this psalm that the affliction that David was facing, the trial that he he found himself in, changed in any way. No evidence that God brought the trial to an end. What did change, though, was David's heart and his outlook on his affliction. 
these six brief verses, he goes all the way from despair to deliverance. And the only thing that changes is the way he looks at his circumstances. And that's, again, the big idea of this psalm. For the Christian, victory in our trials is dependent on looking upward rather than in, inward. So let's begin with David's cry, first point. Just a quick note, first of all, in the number of psalms, we are often give some, given some kind of context to the psalm, when it was written, what the author was going through at the time. David, um, but we aren't given any of those details in this psalm. We have no details of what the trial or the test or the affliction or the enemy was that David was facing when he penned these words. If you're familiar with David's life, these words could easily fit into many, many events in his life and circumstances in his life. David was quite often facing trials in his life that might have that have led him often to wonder where God has gone. Why did God stay his hand in the, when he's facing enemies and they seem to have the advantage over him? So the emotions expressed in this psalm could easily be, have been a recurring theme throughout David's, David's life. And the lack of context, I think, is important here. It gives us some leeway, then, to apply this psalm and these cries to our own life and our own afflictions, our own experiences. The specifics of David's affliction were given. We could have easily be tempted to, to look at his, his circumstances and say, those don't apply to me, and we can easily just skip over Psalm 13 and miss the benefit of what we, had, what we can find here. We might look at the specifics of David's trial and think that's not what I'm dealing with and simply just move on. The reality is that we all face trials and challenges that to us seem to be unending. What happens then is that we can easily ask the question, as David did, how long, O Lord? I know there are many of you here this morning who can relate. For some, it has been a long-term health issue. For others, it can be financial struggles. For others, you're dealing with relationships with a spouse or a, a child or a friend that just don't ever seem to get resolved. Maybe you've been asking the same question as David. How long, O Lord? So I want to explain a little bit about why I chose this psalm this morning. All the men who've been up here speaking this summer on psalms have been given one directive. Pick your favorite psalm. And I knew immediately what psalm I was going to pick. It was going to be Psalm 13. And honestly, it's not one of my favorite. But what is described here is where I've been for the last year and a half. Asking the Lord, how long, O Lord? I'm not going to go into the details of my experiences. They aren't important. Just as David's details and circumstances he was facing were not important. Those of you who know me well would be aware of some of the challenges, but the details of them are not what's important here. I have one challenge that's lingered for over a year. Others have come and gone, but there has been, an, uh, to me at least, seeming unrelenting series of trial after trial and test after test of my faith. There have been weeks and months where I've had to fight daily for my faith. It's been weary and tired to the point of, I've been weary and tired to the point of nearly complete exhaustion at times. And I have asked this question of the Lord, how long? Oh, Lord, all of which, when Dave asked me to preach, I knew exactly what I was going to go to. This has been my life experience for quite some time now. So back to David's cry in these opening verses. How long, O oh Lord, 
Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The distinctive feature of Psalm 13 is this question. How long? It's a question that David poses four times. How long? Four reputation, reputa, um, repetitions of despair. This is clearly early blues where a verse consisted of one line repeated four times. How long? Take note, though, of what Dave, David isn't asking about. He's not asking about the difficulty or the intensity of the affliction. That's not what's eating at him here. That's not what's posing this question. The question isn't, why the severity, O Lord? Why such a difficult trial? There's none of that here. There's no indication that this trial is more than he thinks he can bear. The question he asked of God is, how long? It's the length. It's the duration of this affliction that's got David to this point. The question suggests that whatever David is suffering through has already gone on longer than he feels he can endure. The complaint isn't the severity. It's the length. It seems that David has been oppressed by an enemy for some time now. And for some extended period of time, God has not responded to David. The duration of this affliction is now causing his patience to fail. His strength is failing and he's desperate for relief. David goes on then to bring some clarifications to his questions. He asks, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face It appears that David is wondering if God may have completely forgotten about him. God has not come to David's aid for some time now to the point that it would appear to David that perhaps he has been abandoned by God. David is wondering if this abandoned, now David is wondering if this abandoned will ever change. Will God hide his face and withhold his favor from David forever? In the third how long, we can sense David's frustration and his grief How long must I take counsel in my own soul? It would seem that David has planned, contrived, and carefully thought out and executed numerous attempts to escape his trials and subdue this enemy. But his cry out to the Lord indicates that his plans have all failed. As a result, he expresses his frustration of not being able to resolve the problem, and his heart is now full of sorrow, a sorrow that he feels daily. Plan after plan has failed and gives way to grief and to sorrow. Hence the question, how long? The final how long addresses the enemy David is facing. His enemy is being exalted and has a sense of superiority over David. This is likely a wicked enemy, which makes the enemy of David an enemy of the Lord. Given the context here, this enemy is currently in some kind of dominant position. And if the Lord continues to ignore David... The domination of the enemy may lead to David's death. Those familiar with their Bibles know the question, how long isn't limited to David alone? It's a common expression throughout the Psalms. The question of how long, O Lord, or variations of that question can be found in Psalm 6, 22, 35, 74, 80, 85, 89, 90, and 94. This is a common theme in the book of Psalms. How long? But David, like us or anyone who's familiar with the word of God, who asks this penetrating, this penetrating question, how long, knows full well 
that, that God not only would not, but could not forget David. Look at some verses, some verses here. Psalm 9 says, For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Isaiah 49, but Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. The response comes back. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Isaiah 44 says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servants. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forsaken by me. In 1 Samuel 12, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Of course, God does not forsake his people. There are many, many reminders to us throughout Scripture that God cannot and will not forsake his people. But we still at times have that question, how long? Like David did, are you going to hide your face from me forever? In the midst of trials and difficulties that seem to never end, we can find comfort and assurance in knowing that God does not forget his people. And God will not forget his people. Many times over the last year, I've had to remind myself of these promises. They have been helpful to my soul as I wait patiently on the Lord when it seems as though he has forgotten about me at times. But the reality of life begs the question, why is it that God often seems to delay his comfort when we are going through trials. John 5, 5 tells of a man who Jesus healed at the pool of Bethesda who had his infirmity for 38 years. In Luke 11, Jesus freed a woman from a spirit of infirmity after 18 years of bondage. We are told of the demoniac in Luke 8 who was possessed for a long time. And the woman with a flow of blood, also in Luke 8, suffered for 12 years Before she was healed, 18 years, 12 years, 33 years. How long, O Lord? So why does God delay helping his people? There's no simple answer to that question. But we can be certain as believers that God's timing is always right. We can confidently declare that delays do not reflect any deficiency in God's love and his affection for us. We find hope in Romans 8, 28 that reminds us that God is able to make all things, including trials that seem to be without end, all things work together for our good. Again, even those afflictions that seem to go on forever. There are times he withholds earthly comforts so that we can better understand heavenly comforts. But he will always intervene at the right time. In the meantime, we must not grow bitter or complain or murmur against God. But fortunately, verses 1 and 2 are just the beginning of this psalm. Having expressed his feelings of frustration and despair, David now turns his gaze outward and he petitions the Lord. Point 2, David's petition. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says, says, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And this petition, this prayer that David makes is instructive for us during our prayer times when we find ourselves in dire needs. David begins with two imperatives. 
The first is for God to take a close look at David's situation. It's a remarkable request given David's opinion that God has forgotten about him or hidden his face from him. And the second imperative gets straight to the point. Answer me. David didn't give up following his cry of how long. What's he do? He prays. Notice what he prays for. His prayers are centered around the very thing that he was complaining about or, or bringing up and questioning in the first couple of verses. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. The Hebrew word for the word of word consider to mean means to gaze on me intently. In the first verse, David's complaint is that the Lord has hidden his face from him, so he prays and asks God to turn his face back, to gaze upon David and to consider him. Another component of David's complaint was that the Lord seems to have forgotten him. Knowing that God doesn't forget, he prays, Answer me, O Lord. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. His opening complaint in verse 1 was that the Lord had forgotten him, abandoned him. Answer me is the remedy that David longs for. Essentially, he's praying, I know you haven't forgotten me, so don't ignore me as if you have. I know that you don't forget. So answer me, O Lord. These imperatives are are to consider and answer. uh, These imperatives to consider and answer are, of course, part of David's prayer. But the fact that they are a prayer underscores the sense of urgency in David's heart. He's saying, God, look at me and answer me now. And this is not just a passive, God, look at me and answer. This is more than that. It's God, look at me and answer me now. He wants an answer now. He's wondering where God has gone. God has turned his face and he prays and asks the Lord to turn his face back to hear his prayer and to answer. What I find, I find that what David does next is both interesting and instructive for our prayer life. He attempts to persuade or motivate God to answer him now. And he gives God two good reasons why he should respond. So David continues, let up, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And I don't think David is being melodramatic here. His prayer continues with the argument, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David has given his thoughts on why it would be good, why it would be a good idea for the Lord to respond to his prayer. I find the construction interesting. He says, if I die, Lord, the unrighteous will have a triumph to celebrate. So this portion of the prayer in verse 4 isn't a concern that David has over David's reputation. When he says, lest my enemies say I have prevailed and lest my foes rejoice, there's a not written or spoken out of David's concern for David's reputation. I think David brings this up out of his concern for God's honor and God's reputation. Both are being shown contempt by David's enemy, and David is asking God to defend God's own honor. In David's mind, it doesn't make sense that God would delay in answering when so much is on the line, including God's reputation. To write in about this section of David's prayer, A.P. Ross writes this. He said, the psalmist motivates God to answer his prayer with two reasons. The first is that if God does not answer his prayer, he will die. The fear is that he would, should sleep, but not an ordinary sleep. It's a sleep that will, give, will be characterized by a result in death. 
The second motivation he gives concerns what his enemy and those who harass him would say if he was not delivered from them. The point is that David is a faithful believer in the Lord. The triumph of his enemies over him would be hailed, hailed by them as a triumph over David and his faith. David's appeal is that if God did not want them to rejoice, perhaps in some kind of cultic setting, then he would have to answer the prayer. So David prays, and immediately his eyes are drawn upward, which takes us to the third point. David looks upward. Before we consider these final two verses, I want to go back and review the first two for you again. As I reread these, I want you to notice where David's focus is in the opening verses. He writes again, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Did you notice David's use of the first person pronouns, the I, me, my, my soul, my heart, my enemy. So there is a true sense in which the feelings expressed in these verses are natural. They are inevitable aspects of our humanity. They are what anyone would feel when suffering for an extended period of time. But those kinds of feelings are not to be wallowed in. It's right and it's good to cry out to the Lord in our distress. And we don't need to try to stifle the depth of our suffering. But we cannot go away from this uh, these verses and this psalm thinking that we have the right to indulge and murmur against God. As we come to vice verses 5 and 6, there is a sharp contrast to the opening of verses. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Secular psychologists would notice the change from the first two verses to the last two and maybe diagnose David as bipolar. That, of course, would be completely wrong, since modern psychology doesn't consider our sin nature and the spiritual battle that's raging in David's heart and ours as well. So there's a lesson for us all this morning in, that we can apply in the midst of our trials and tribulations and ongoing and seemingly endless struggles. When David looked inside, he only saw the hopelessness of his circumstances. That's what we see in verses 1 and 2. But when he turns his focus outward in verses 3 and 4 in his prayer, he still sees the bleakness of his situation. But now as we come to verses 5 and 6, David looks up to the Lord. And what does he see? He sees the glory of his salvation and the bountiful way that God has dealt with him. Notice that the inward-looking personal pronouns, me, I, and mine, have been replaced with words of praise addressed to our God, your steadfast love, your salvation. It's no longer about David. It's now about the Lord and his bountiful dealings with David. Notice the parallels between the opening verses and the closing verses. We see frustrated, frustrated plans give way to trust in God's love. A burdened soul gives way to rejoicing in God's salvation. Sorrow and grief give way to singing to the Lord. David is beginning to worship here. Phil Johnson says this about the change in perspective. He writes, in other words, David has exchanged his sign for a song, his sorrow for rejoicing, and his fear for trust. And thus what in the beginning sounded like a dismal dirge of unbelief 
becomes an exhilarating hymn of faith. What's the difference? The trial has not gone away. David's circumstances have not changed, but his point of view has. Now his eyes are clearly directed upward. Matthew Henry also notes this change in perspective and writes this. What a surprising change here in just a few lines. In the beginning of the psalm, we have him drooping, trembling, and ready to sink into melancholy and despair. But in the close of it, rejoicing in God and elevated and enlarged in his praises, see the power of faith, the power of prayer, and how God is to, how good it is to draw near to God. Prayer is the key to David's change in perspective. He didn't wait until he felt better to go to God in prayer. David honestly and straightforwardly took his complaints to the Lord, and he lays out his case for God to act. And in the process of that, God changed David's heart. Without going into details, there's a situation I find myself a few months ago that was eating away at me. It was causing major disruptions in my life, And I was fighting back against it. I didn't want the changes, didn't see how they were good for me. I was looking for a way out, and I was fighting with God about this. And one night, as I lay awake in bed, anxious about the implications that this change was bringing about, he was imposing upon me, as I was trying to sort it out and pray for help, the Holy Spirit came and he intervened in my life. He confronted my sinful pride, my arrogance and selfishness, gave me the ability to repent that night. The situation and the circumstances that I was fighting against haven't changed, not one bit. But since that night, when God changed my heart, I see the situation I was facing as an opportunity to serve others, to bless them, to honor them. And I do it now with joy and excitement rather than anger and bitterness. I can worship God through it rather than rage with anger. What changed? The circumstances didn't change. What changed was my heart. That night, the Holy Spirit changed my heart. It was good. It was God who gave David the new perspective, and it was God who gave me the new perspective that night. David did not simply will a change of his heart. Rather, he laid out his heart before the Lord, and it was the Lord who expanded David's vision and turned his focus upward in response to David's prayers. So we can sum up the whole lesson of this psalm in these words from Psalm 3, verse 8. It says, salvation belongs to the Lord. That goes for deliverance from our trials as well as our salvation from our sin. There is no other truth that emerges from Scripture so definitively. If we look around or within or anywhere but to God for a way of escape out of life's challenges and difficulties, We're going to be condemning ourselves to disappointment and ultimately failure. It is a God who provides the way of escape, not out of our trials, not around our trials, but right through our trials. He enables us to bear the testing, not to avoid it. And he uses our tribulations to accomplish his wonderful purposes in our lives, to grow us and to mature us and to make us more like Christ. David's thoughts have clearly shifted in that direction. His hope did not lay in any personal merit. It it lay not even in the reality that his case was just. His hope was in the Lord's loving kindness, and he expresses that in verse 5. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. 
He found the remedy for his despair in the grace and goodness of God. God's love is steadfast, and we can hold to that truth by faith even when we don't feel the truth. It's significant that David speaks of the Lord's blessing to him in the past tense, not as though God's goodness to him has now ceased, but he is speaking of a greater deliverance from a temporal earthly trial. God's salvation, the grace that redeemed David from the guilt and punishment of his sins, was already an accomplished reality. And David reminded himself of that here as he had an eternity of pure, bountiful blessing to look forward to, regardless of how this trial would come out, work, be worked out. Even death could not take away that from him. David was claiming the promise of the gospel here that whoever believes in Jesus Christ should not perish but have eternal life. That's a safe way through trials. Remind yourself that Christ has already suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He bore the the guilt of our sin, and he paid the price in full, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And it speaks of the only kind of deliverance that truly matters in life. That's the promise that made David sing. It's the reality that lifted him out of despair. It was not that he deserved deliverance or even that justice demanded God's intervention on David's behalf here. Neither of those things was true. God owed David nothing, and he owes you and me nothing. But David's mood changed when he remembered that God had already given him everything of eternal value. Lay hold of faith like that, and it will make all of our trials and pains of this earthly life fade into irrelevance. If we look at life's challenges correctly, we can see that God works in all things, including our hardest trials and our longest trials, together for our good. That's how even in the darkest hour of our earthly anguish, we can fix our eyes on him and say confidently with David at the conclusion of this psalm, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder here from David that you have dealt bountifully with us. Many of us face difficult challenges in life. They seem to go on and on and on and have no end. And we are tempted to believe, as David did at times, that perhaps you have abandoned us. You've turned your eyes away from us. But, Lord, we know that that is not true, that you cannot abandon and forsake your own children. So do we cling to those promises as David did? And we look to our God and we're reminded of the great salvation that we have in Christ. Lord, teach us to keep the eternal view as we face life and the challenges, as our emotions get the best of us at times. Or draw our eyes back to our God and remind us of the great salvation that we have in Christ. Lord, we are grateful that we have psalms like this that help us to deal with the realities of life and the struggles that it brings. And may we, like David, turn our eyes and our gaze to you 
And when we worship and sing to you, as David did as well, in Jesus' name, amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.